All right. Welcome. Glad that you all are here. Glad to be here myself. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to the book of Acts chapter 3. We will be progressing verse by verse through this chapter. I want to remind us this morning, this is God's Word spoken to us that we might hear it, believe it, and receive it by faith. Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and they said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's, astounded. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. And when He had decided to release Him, but you denied the Holy and Righteous One, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, And His name, by faith in His name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, He thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers, You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up His servant, sent Him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are gathered here this morning that You would speak to us. That You would speak to us in such a profound way that we would be changed. That our minds would be renewed our hearts would be refreshed. Lord, we ask that You would reinvigorate us, reignite us. 
that we would learn to love what you love, that we would learn to despise what you hate. Lord, we pray this morning that you would release us from the tyrannies that you have died to take from us. So come, Holy Spirit, and meet with us this morning. Come, Holy Spirit, and be tender with us this morning. Come and do that in us which we can never do for ourselves. Come, Holy Spirit, and bring your word to life. So we're asking for ears that we would hear your voice. We're asking for eyes that we would see you in the midst of our lives. And we're asking for hearts that we would receive by faith all that you have accomplished in your Son, Jesus Christ. And all God's people agree. Amen. It is a privilege and an honor to be with you this morning. I'm a big fan of Grace Covenant. You and your generosity and in the leadership that you have entrusted yourselves to have supported myself personally, my wife, our family, and then also our church. You are truly dear brethren to us. And we count it a privilege to know and serve and partner along with you in the gospel of our Lord Jesus. As we come to Acts chapter 3 this morning, it is important that we remember the folly of the disciples in the Gospels. It is easy for us at times to so center our minds in one passage, in one paragraph, in one chapter, that we sever it from a larger body of context. So let us remember this morning the foolishness of Peter how quickly they were to do the wrong thing, to, to think the wrong thing, to, to be impulsive when they should have been patient, to be silent when they should have spoken. Let us remember Peter and the boys as they were in the Gospels. Frail, foolish, sometimes insightful, right? You remember when Jesus said, Cuddled up with his disciples and he gathered them to himself and he says, there's a lot of buzz about us going on, right? There's a lot of buzz about me. Who do you think the crowds think I am? And some say you're Elijah and others say a prophet who is to come. And, and Jesus looks at his apostles, these rugged disciples, and he says, who do you guys think I am? And Peter blurts out with greater insight that he realized at the time, you are the Messiah. You are the one who was promised. You're the anointed one of Israel. They're men. They have insight and they have folly, like you and like me. So as we come to Acts chapter 3 this morning, let us remember that something profound has taken place. When we meet these same foolish disciples after Pentecost, there's a renewal and a transformation that's palpable, yes? They are not the same. There's a sturdiness to their stride. And there's an endurance to their steps. They know in greater resolve and greater humility who they are and what they are called to be like. So we open this morning in Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. According to your clocks, that's 3 p.m. It's when everybody went to pray. After all, the church at this time, having received the Spirit at Pentecost and be led forth in power, Peter preached the great first sermon of the early church. You can read about it in the previous chapter. At the conclusion of that sermon, the church was no longer 120 or maybe 500. The church was over 3,000 and growing daily. So it was the custom of the church to go to the temple at 3 o'clock every day to pray, to go and submit their hearts, submit their lives once again in a renewal, an ongoing expression of their dependence on God for all that was to come. 
So Peter and John are heading into the temple. And then in verse 2, we get introduced a new character. A man, lame from birth. You wouldn't really like it if I called you lame, would you? Right? Lame in this context means that the faculties of his legs and his ankles and his feet, they don't work. It doesn't mean he's lame like he's weird or dull. It means he's lame. He, he's lost the capacity to propel himself. He's lost the capacity to walk. In fact, we're told specifically that this lame man from birth was being carried and that his family and loved ones would lay him daily at the gate outside the temple. Which gate? The gate called Beautiful. Very specific gate. And that his job, we're told at the end of verse 2, was to ask for alms, to ask for mercy money, or sometimes we would refer to it as guilt money, right? There's no better place to set up shop if you're in the begging condition than right outside a religious service, right? There's wisdom to this. This is his only source of income, and he's an excellent beggar. He's setting up right outside the temple of the Lord to get money from folks on the way in or maybe to get money from the folks on the way out. If they feel guilty on the way in and want to establish a righteousness of their own, they might give on the way in. And if they receive an abundance of grace and mercy on the way out, they might be so filled with joy and compassion, so grateful to God for all that He's given them that they might bless Him with a little, share with Him some of what they've received. But He sets up the shop right outside the temple right outside the beautiful gate. Verse 3, we're told that Peter and John are going into the temple. The understanding we have is that this is a daily routine. This is normal. This is faith in action. Prayer is a normal and important part of the Christian life. And so they were going into the temple to gather as a community for a time of formal and corporate prayer. And the beggar sees Peter and he sees John. They are of particular notice to his attention in verse 3. And he asks them to receive alms. Now we don't know exactly what form he asks. Maybe he asks with his voice. Maybe he says alms for the poor. Maybe he has a line that he's worked on for a few years. He's been lame for 40 years. 40 years. He's standing. Nope. He's sitting outside the gate, outside the presence of the Lord, outside the temple. And here he sees Peter and he sees John and he asks them for alms. In our day, in our culture, we're used to seeing somebody with a cup or maybe an open guitar case, right? Somebody playing in the streets and hoping for the charity of those around them that they would have mercy on him. Whatever the mechanism was, whether it was a cup or a vocal request, he's trying to connect with Peter and John for a flash, a moment, just a stint. He's probably very accustomed to what we would today call drive-by blessing, yes? They don't really want to bother with the guy. They don't really want to know his story or, or what happened in his parents' life that he was born that way. They don't want to know any of those assumed conditions. If you have any questions about that, I invite you to study John chapter 9. Jesus teaches specifically on that theology in Peter and the boys and the expectations in that culture that someone was to be blamed for someone in a lamed condition. But in either case, mercy was very rarely if ever personal. He just wanted their money. He was hoping for silver, and every once in a while, maybe he got gold, right? But that was his life. Day in and day out, he was sat by others, carried by others, placed strategically outside the gate called Beautiful. And he would ask for nickels and dimes and quarters, Maybe once in a while, some folded paper would come his way. And that 
was the sum total of his value to his family. He understood that he was a burden, could not work, he could not earn his keep. The only form of work they could give was to put him in a position to receive blessing or to infect others with guilt, shame, that he would somehow profit in a small way. And here comes Peter, here comes John, ready to go to prayer. And this man interrupts their stride and asks for alms. Watch verse 4. Peter directs his gaze at him, as does John. These two great apostles have now turned their attention not on the temple, not on the church, not on the prayer that they were going to offer, not on the people that they were going to lead, but on this beggar outside the city, outside the temple. And they command of him but one thing. Three simple words in English. Look at us. Look at us. Let us take an impersonal situation and let us make it quite personal. Verse 5, And he fixed his attention on them. And then Luke interprets that for us, helping us understand the moment. That this man is expecting to receive something from Peter and from John. Be this beggar for a second. You see all of life from your backside. Always looking up at those who have ability you have never known. And so he's looking up to Peter, looking up at John. No longer staring at the ground, offering a cup, but rather looking up man to man. Man to men. And he's hopeful. Maybe for the first time in a long time, he's thinking in this moment, I might get gold. Right? This won't be the kind of change that jingles. This will be the kind of thing I can take to the bank. I can finally show my dad that all our hard work, all my begging, I I can be less of a burden to my family. Can you feel the expectations rising in his heart? His blood beginning to pump faster and faster. His expectations rising and rising and rising. And then watch what Peter does. Peter absolutely obliterates this guy. All this expectation, all this hope. He's expecting to receive something. Verse 6, Peter destroys his thinking. Peter says, I have no silver and gold. Doesn't that let the air out of the balloon? Have you thought about that? If we don't put ourselves in this guy's position, we'll miss the moment. I'm going to get gold. I'm going to get gold. I'm going to get gold. You have no what? No silver. No gold. I don't suppose you have platinum in your back pocket, right? Peter has just taken currency off the table. And this guy's now left literally in the dust. What we need to see in this moment will pass us by very quickly if we don't pay attention. The sum total of this beggar's expectation is far lower than God's design. This guy wants far too little from Peter and John. If he really knew who Peter was, more than that, if he really knew who Peter worked for, gold and silver should not be on the front page of the laundry list of things he would ask for. Amen? This guy has so low level adjusted himself that all he wants is scraps from the proverbial table. It is beyond his imagination that there's somebody walking the planet who could put his ankles back together and make the ligaments and muscles in his feet work. That he could go and get a job. Hopefully their economy was stronger than ours. But the idea is simple. Right? 
This guy has no expectation of restoration. No expectation of anything other than chump change. And brothers and sisters, this is our experience of the Christian life all too often. We low-level adjust constantly, asking God for just a little bit more silver, maybe a tiny chunk of gold, maybe a newer car, a better couch, a bigger TV. Lord, my life would be perfect if, insert tiny comfort. Yes? God didn't come to earth to add a little to your comfort. He didn't come and die on a cross so that you could have five extra pieces of silver or two extra bars of gold. This guy has no idea what God's about to unleash in his life. But here he is in the depths of despair. Look at us. Okay, okay, I'm ready. Lay it on me. Do I need two hands to hold on to this one? Silver and gold I don't have. Oh. But what I do have, I give to you. Well, what do you have, Peter? What do you have, John? What is it that you have? Oh, that's right. You have the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Godhead, the triune God with you, in you, moving through you. And I want pennies and dollars. And you have the Spirit of the living God. And so Peter says freely, what I do have, I give. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Be the guy. Be the guy way down in the dirt. When Peter reaches his hand low, and the beggar reaches his hand up, in that moment, what's your response? In that moment, do you believe that that guy has the power to restore 40 years of torturous life? 40 years of inferiority complex. 40 years of being an unbelievable and exhausting burden on his family and friends. Friends. <laughs> like a beggar would have friends. And Peter reaches down to his lowly estate and takes him by the hand. And this guy, you got to read it for yourself, leaps up. And then he stands. And then he begins to walk. What happened? What happened? Dr. Luke tells us that immediately in verse 7, when Peter took him by his hand and began to raise him up, immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Muscles that had atrophied for 40 years of life on earth instantly become powerful. Ligaments that had never bothered being used and had no tension were immediately snapped together and made strong. He goes from a life in the dust to a life of dancing on dust. Do you see that? This guy wanted nickels and quarters and God restored him unto health and vitality. Maybe the thing you need most in life isn't money, isn't more comfort. Maybe the thing you need most in this life is a transforming work of health, of restoration in your mind or in your heart or in your body. And so Peter lifts him up and he stands, maybe wobbly at first, but I don't think so. And then he's so encouraged by being able to stand that he walks, so encouraged to walk that he enters into the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. We must wrap our minds around this moment. He who was left in the dust outside the temple, outside the presence of God, is now dancing inside the temple 
inside the presence of the Lord. Why? How did this happen? That's where the rest of the chapter goes. The rest of the chapter hinges on the question, how does this happen? There's one other thing we need to see before we go there. And it has everything to do with church planting. Peter doesn't come. The early church wasn't known as a wealthy organization. Peter doesn't have droves of gold hidden in his house. He doesn't have piles of silver waiting to be distributed. But the mantra of the early church is well described here in chapter 3. But what I do have, I give. It begs us to ask the question today, what do you have that you can give? Some of you may be blessed with enormous finances. Some of you may be blessed with enormous talent. Some of you may be blessed with free time in your schedule. Your kids are gone, college tuition covered. Some of you may not feel very blessed at all. And you're tempted to think, I don't have anything to give. I encourage you that that thought is far from a biblical understanding of who you are in Christ. At the moment of conversion, all of us are given spiritual gifts to go along with our physical ones. All of us have talents. All of us have time or energy or can make an effort towards something. If all were preachers, this room would be pretty dirty, yeah? There is a job for you in the kingdom of God. There is work for you in this church, in this community, or there's work for you in another. What I have, I give, is an ongoing mantra in our church, as I'm sure it is in this one. But how does this happen? How does someone start lowly in life, clinging to the dust of the ground, and rise to be dancing in the presence of God. How does that happen? Verse 11, we read, While he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And they're all astounded. Imagine this moment. Bill, you got to go get Sally. you got to go. He's walking. More than that, he's dancing. He's jumping around. We know this guy. For 40 years, we've walked past him. And here he is. He's in the temple. He's not outside the temple. He's in the temple. you got to go get Raul. Raul's going to die. He's walked by this guy all the time. As a matter of fact, Uncle Bill, who hates him, remember that guy who sneers at him all the time? Go get Bill. He's dancing. That's what's going on in this moment. Sometimes we read the Scripture too fast. We don't put ourselves in it. Be in this moment. Feel the tension of this moment. And they're all astounded. How on earth could this happen? How on earth can this take place? Forty years, he's a beggar, and now he's something else. We don't even know what to call him. Verse 12, And when Peter saw it, Half of Bible study is filling in pronouns. I'm just telling you that right now. If you want to study the Bible better, get a little pen and a highlighter, find a pronoun, and figure out what it really is talking about. Who's the them? Who's the they? In this case, what is the it? What is the it that Peter sees? Peter saw it and addressed the people. What's the it? Peter sees their astonishment. Peter's been given holy eyes to see the holiness of a moment. And he sees what's happening in the human heart of all those around him. And he's going to jump into that moment. Many of us shrink back. Some of us feel ill-equipped to even see the moment. And some of us who see the moment shrink back and don't speak into it. That's not Peter anymore. He's grown in his relationship with Christ so much so that he's going to jump in instead of shrink back. And watch what he does. 
he opens up and preaches the second great sermon of the early church. Are you ready? Men of Israel. Remember, this is in the Jewish temple. Yes, there'd be Roman guards around, and yes, there'd be Gentile converts, but by and large, the audience was still Jewish men. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us? Okay, I know many of you haven't taken a homiletics class, but what you're supposed to do in the first few minutes you're giving a talk is gather the people in and make them comfortable. Make them comfortable with you, make them comfortable with the material, give them a sense of where you're going, how it's going to proceed. And Peter does none of that. Peter sees that the crowd is already gathered and he jumps on them. And he rebukes them. The opening line to this sermon is a rebuke. What's wrong with you guys? Why are you astonished? This should be seen as normal. Wait, what? It's a miracle. Yes. Why are you astonished? Why are you astonished that God takes lowly men and raises them up? Why is that shocking to you? That's Peter's opening thought. And then he follows it quickly with, make sure you understand how this really did happen. Why are you wondering? Why are you staring at me? Why are you staring at John? As though by our power or piety, we have made him walk. And this is essential. Peter's speaking here now about a righteousness that comes not from himself. It's not his own righteousness. What he's literally saying is, it's not because I'm nifty or awesome or powerful that this guy walks. No, no. I walk and move and have power not because it originates in me. Not because I create it, not because I define it, hardly even govern it. There is power and piety that flows from another. And he's going to go on to speak in this entire sermon about the righteousness of Jesus Christ. About what it means that the substitutionary atonement secured for us on the cross is more than just covering our debt. It's more than just rectifying our curses. See, we undervalue too many doctrines in the church today. Do you know that the doctrine of the virgin birth is essential for your restored relationship with Christ? If that lamb isn't spotless, isn't blameless, isn't without blemish, you're not atoned for. Jesus Christ had to be sinless. He had to be obedient. Romans 5, the language that's given to us is that his whole life was a single act of obedience. Therefore, he established the source of his power, his Father, and the life of humility and dependence upon him, the divinity he had in himself, power of the Spirit, all three in the Godhead, yes, Trinity 101, but that also in the 33 years of righteous living from first to final breath, he was without blemish, without flaw, without fault. That's his piety. Perfect son, perfect brother, perfect friend, perfect rabbi. Perfect priest, perfect prophet, perfect king. 33 years of righteousness establishes his piety. And that's what Peter's going to begin to explain throughout the rest of this sermon. But he's going to begin where all of us should begin, and that's in the Old Testament. Did you know that Christianity has a great heritage a glorious heritage. I know far too many students and young people, young professionals who begin and end their understanding of the gospel only in the New Testament. I'm a New Testament Jesus freak. 
Rather than understanding that the promises that are fulfilled in the New Testament have an origination in the Old. That there are centuries of God's faithfulness. Centuries of God's interaction with His people that begin far before Jesus came and took on flesh. I love the way B.B. Warfield calls it. He calls it addition by subtraction. I mean, subtraction by addition. Right? He added to himself humanity. He added to himself a mortal body. We have a great and glorious heritage. And we need to understand that the Old Testament has as much to say about who we are and who we are becoming as the Old Testament, as the New Testament does. Pardon me. And so he begins to help them understand the connectivity of this moment. It's not by my power. It's not by my piety. Verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, that religion, that God, the living Yahweh, He is the one who has glorified Jesus Christ. He's the one that promised the Messiah who sent the Messiah, who is the Messiah. That's what's happening in verse 13. They glorified His servant. That word could also be translated child, Jesus. Whom you, remember He's speaking now to the crowd, delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when He had denied to release Him. 14, but you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Time out. As we come to this text, we must remember that he's not talking about a theoretical thing that happened decades and decades and decades, maybe a century earlier. He's in the temple that Jesus cleansed. He's in the courtyard where Jesus taught. And he's among the people whose very vocal cords and diaphragms cried crucify when the people of Israel were given the choice by Pilate to take Barabbas the murderer convict felon or Jesus the teacher the rabbi the healer the one who would cast out demons they were given a choice and their minds and hearts and vocal cords screamed crucify Christ Kill that Jesus. We'll take Barabbas. Because he's like us. It's not a theoretical to them. You and I, if we're to understand the Gospel correctly, we need to take our minds and put our own imaginations in that place. Yes? We need to know that it's our sin as much as their sin that put Christ on the cross. It's our voice as much as their voice. But for us, that's an abstraction. For Peter's audience, it's a reality. Those are the men who had Jesus crucified. They were the ones who screamed crucify. And that's what Peter's going headlong into. We need to learn a lot about evangelism in the life of the early church because we live in a culture that doesn't understand and we produce a culture in the church that doesn't understand that confrontation is a necessary part of true biblical evangelism. What is the source of their greatest shame? It's that they didn't receive the one that God sent. That they wanted Barabbas and they didn't want Christ. These are the elders, the builders, if you will, who rejected the cornerstone. Right? Their greatest shame is that they were instruments of death to the Messiah. And rather than talk around it, rather than leave it unspoken or unsaid or unconfronted, Peter goes the opposite way and says, let me expose, let me put right before you your greatest shame so that you can get over it and understand that God can redeem you from it. What is your secret sin? What's the habit? What's the addiction? What is it in your life, in your heart, 
that scares you to death if anybody around you right now knew that holds you prisoner. Peter goes after their shame. He doesn't let them sit in it. It's not because he's angry. It's not because he's itinerant. It's because he loves. Peter knows great sin. And he knows his master is greater. And so Peter is willing to go headlong into their great sin because he knows that the power of the Holy Spirit can do that much more than what he did to a little guy with busted ankles. Why are you astonished that God can heal ankles? He restores hearts like mine. That's what Peter is after in this moment. You denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Verse 15, and you killed the author of life. Meditate on that for a second. That's a great line. You killed the one who put stars in the sky. You killed the one who breathed life in Adam and Eve. It wasn't just that you murdered, but you killed the author of life. But that's not the final word. God doesn't leave us there. God doesn't leave us with Jesus Christ on the cross, suffering and dying and in the grave. Peter then reminds his audience something that they know more than we do. That God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And he emphasizes this thought in verse 15 by saying, to this we are witnesses. Peter has got a crowd of people around him who know that the tomb was empty. They know because they walked into it. They know because they saw the tomb that he was put in and they don't have bad directions. They didn't need a GPS to relocate that one. They laid the Lord of glory in that tomb and I walked into that tomb and there was no corpse to be found. How important is the doctrine of the resurrection to you? Peter stakes all of Christianity on it in this moment. Yeah, you guys exercised evil. You killed the author of life. Congratulations. God has a bigger ending than what you would low-level adjust to believe. That tomb is empty. I know because I stood in it, Peter declares. To this we are witnesses. Verse 16, and his name, and then the, the lines there are to help you understand what he's clarifying. By faith in his name, he has made this man strong whom you see and know. We have to imagine what it was like to see the beggar, right? That's why I'm running all over the stage trying to help you picture it. But Peter can point to the guy, right? Peter can say, you know him. This is Bruce. Bruce sat 40 years outside this gate. You walked past him every day. To your shame, you usually didn't even help him. We have to imagine it. They're watching it. And there's a whole church full of people who know about the resurrection. There's a whole church full of people who were gathering for formal prayer and instead got their lives interrupted by the gospel of Christ going forth. And so you can look at him, inspect him, touch his legs, feel his ankles. It is by faith in Jesus Christ, by Jesus' piety, by Jesus' power, that this guy now stands in perfect health in the presence of you all. 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. 19. Repent, therefore, and turn again. Understand that in Adam, all of us have turned away from God. By the mysterious union we have with our forefather Adam, all of us are born guilty. And have turned, humanity itself has turned away from God. And so Peter's invitation is as simple as it is profound. Turn back. Turn a second time. Peter's invitation precludes the idea that there was a first turning. And that there needs to be 
a second. And that's the invitation for us. The invitation is for us to repent, to turn again, so that our sins may be covered or blotted out. Verse 20, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. He does not here say, and if you believe in this temporal life, everything is flowers, puppies, and rose petals. Right? No hippie Jesus running around, I'm okay, you're okay, everybody's okay. And yet there are times, this is a promise, it's a declaration of fact, there are times of refreshing for you in Christ. There are times of suffering for you in Christ. And God ordains and leads in both. But lest you think your life is all misery, there's a reminder here that in Christ, in the union we have with the second Adam, Times of refreshing do come. Maybe not in gold. Maybe not in silver. Maybe not with a husband or a wife that you so long for. But times of refreshing nonetheless. But there will be a day, verse 21, there will be a day when Jesus Christ who is appointed for us goes to heaven, He's there now, and heaven must receive Him until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. There is the promise in Scripture of an end to misery, of an end to sorrow, of an end to sin and sadness. That's the great declaration of the cross for us. Is that by the cross of Jesus Christ, God has broken the power of sin. He has paid the penalty for sin. And He has pledged to one day remove the presence of sin from us and from the world forever. And that is the day that we long for. That is the day that we watch for. And that is the day that's being referenced here. And then Peter reminds them of the great heritage of the Christian faith. That Moses, he's quoting here from Deuteronomy, Moses once said that the Lord God will raise up for you, the you there being Israel, a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those after him also proclaimed these days. Think about this. Peter is in the temple speaking about now. He's saying it's now. All those centuries we longed for when. We longed to look forward to. We had to wait. We had to wait. We had to wait. And now, now these days begin. Now times of refreshings are coming. The inauguration of the kingdom has occurred. Pentecost was last week. Did you not get the memo? The days are now. The restoration is now. The Messiah has come. The people of God are being called. The gospel is going forth. And then he's going to conclude where we all begin. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. But the gospel is not just for the Jewish community 2,000 years ago, is it? The gospel is for the nations. And so Peter takes this day, this church, and us with them all the way back to Genesis 12 to remember that when God set apart Abraham, it was not to create a holier-than-thou subgroup of people. It wasn't to create a superhumanity. It was instead to gather together men and women from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation. The gospel is not ours to keep hidden and locked away in some safe in our hearts. The gospel belongs to the nations. And it is our job. We've been entrusted with the mission of taking the gospel to the nations. And let me encourage all of you in closing this morning that we have been entrusted to plant local churches. That one of the dear loves of God 
in the Scripture is that there would be new churches in the cities around the world, that there would be new communities gathered together in fellowship, in times of formal prayer, in times gathered for worship, in times of remembering the solid, sound teaching of the apostles. Sound doctrine is God's idea, not man's. We are encouraged because we see what God is doing in grace covenant. By grace has faith that grows in part because of the ministry you have, in part because of the faithfulness God has led out of this community. Church planting renews churches that already exist and and they gather together people who would otherwise be outside. They bring into the temple courts those who would otherwise low-level adjust and live outside the temple courts. One of the reasons I love Acts chapter 3, and I wanted to share it with you this morning, is because God wants the gospel to go forth to the nations. And in His infinite wisdom, we might be tempted to call it folly, He invites us into that process asking us to give what we have, asking us to survey our time, our talents, our efforts, our energies, and to see as He governs, as He leads all areas of our lives, that the gospel would go to the nations. It is through human testimony that He is determined to bring others to Himself. Amen? So there's much work to be done. There are many people to gather. There's much prayer to be offered. There are many Bible studies to be had. But all of that points in a single direction, dating all the way back, all the way back to Genesis 12 and the establishment of the covenant there. So in closing this morning, I ask you, what do you have and what do you give? What do you have? And what do you give? Amen? Let's pray.